oh my god, if you give a beginner a destroyer, do you expect he's going to come back? No. I used to think it was a waste of time to play around a disco. Do you ever notice yourself changing what's in your bag depending on the wind? On the road, there's no schedule. There is no regiment. Things come up at, and are thrown at you all the time. Going to the field is critical. The most important thing I think that you need to know is, hi, I'm Juliana Korber. I'm sponsored by Innova, and you're listening to the Chain Plankers podcast. What is going on, everyone? Wonderful to, you know, see, or I guess, you know, you guys are listening to us. We can't see you. We can't hear you. But thanks for coming back to hear from us again. If you're new, welcome. I am Horatio, and my partner here is Quentin. We had a wonderful episode today with Juliana Corver. She is back and better than ever. And we had a wonderful, you know, chat with her. But Quentin, what can the listeners expect today? It's okay, Horatio. I can see and hear you. So, you know, we're almost having a conversation with some of our closest friends also tapping in and getting in on this knowledge that we had in this episode. Let me tell you what, guys, absolutely must listen all the way to the end. This is the kind of episode where you are constantly learning something new and it's not just fluff pieces. It's, it's information that you can take with you the very next time you go out to play disc golf. And I promise you, you're going to be a better disc golf by doing so. We talk about wind. We talk about minimizing your bag. We talk about field work. We talk about the killer instinct inside of Juliana Corver and how there's a certain way to go about disc golf to get better. Highly recommend listening all the way to the end. And without further ado, I think we should bring Juliana in on the podcast now. All righty, everyone. Let's welcome on our five-time world champ. You heard her in the intro, sponsored by Innova. Juliana Corver, how are we doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing good. Very excited. How was last weekend? You were at the Des Moines Challenge. How did that go for you? Oh, my gosh. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I'm not sure... if I've been to that course since 2004 when the world championships were held there and it's, it's just a really special place for me and to see the community really come together and um, feel so strongly about the course and put so much hard work into it. And I felt like the players really liked it and it was extraordinarily heartwarming for me. Des Moines, is that a course, you know, like, how much do you know about like, how courses get picked of becoming part of the tour or like what goes into that? Do they submit applications or how does that work? I don't know a lot about that. Um, I'm just, I feel like I'm just brand new to the tour, today's tour myself. So I would imagine, and this is totally guessing, I would imagine, yes, that applications are sent in and uh, Pickard Park in Indianola, just south of Des Moines is one of, if not arguably the best course in the state. So clearly that helped in the Des Moines Challenges bid. Yeah, absolutely. And you said you had played there before in the 2004 World Championship, correct? That's the last time that I remember being there, yes. Okay, so could you maybe just describe a little bit of how the course maybe has changed since then or like any stark differences you noticed or was it pretty similar? It's very reminiscent of the 2004 course. There are some uh, differences. It's more different than uh, to the 1999 course, which I put in 
originally when the course was approved. Um, and the reason for that is um, the course, I guess, bird's eye view, it kind of goes in an L shape and the, the boot of the L, we were not allowed to use that area originally. So the course was um, in the, on the, the taller side of, of the L as you're looking down on top of it. And there's plenty of room. So it's not like it was crowded back then, but now it's even, if it's even more luxuriously, and I'm not saying it's long, it is long, but it's not long for long sake. It's just that you're not cross, you have no crossing fairways and you're not backing up and going um, in places that other people are. <laughs> I'm not explaining that well. It's, it's just a, a very nice piece of property. It's got beautiful rolling hills. It has prairie grass, uh, divining the fairways, big mature trees, um, in specific areas, but a lot of areas, it's just um, throw it and keep it in the fairway. It's beautiful. I love it. You know, I've always been a little bit curious about, you know, courses and design. And, you know, there's some, some designers that travel and kind of design different ones. But, you know, you've toured some and seen a lot of courses. Is there, is there like styles? You know, is there like a West Coast discourse style or like an East Coast style do you see differences? Yes, but I think it's more determined by topography and uh, how wooded the land area is than by parts of the country or the designers themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, that's a really good question, Horatio. I've always wondered that myself. See courses, like there'll be people talking about we're on the East Coast, we're up here, like everything is wooded, everything is wooded, but I'm sure you could find like pieces of land where there's like no trees. But, you know, I feel like they definitely, when they're out on the East Coast, they do courses for the tour that are, like, strictly wooded. And they come out to Emporia for the uh, DDO, and it's, like, a wide-open course. So I think part of that is if you pick a designer in, on the East Coast who has played nothing but wooded courses, and you take them to a wide-open field, and you say, design a course, they'll say, where? You know, and there's no course here. And so... Obviously, that's not going to happen all the time, but I think there's a little bit of self-selection there in that that's what they know, so that's what they want, that's what they design for, and so they might not seek out different land. And in Emporia, well, you just don't have an option. <laughs> you've, got, you've got this piece of land that has some big mature trees on it, but you don't have woods anywhere, so that's what you get. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight there because I, I mean, it all makes sense, but it's just something I guess I've never thought about either because, you know, if you've only played wooded courses, that's disc golf to you. And then you go play in the wide open and you're like, oh, this isn't disc golf. We're just throwing a hyzer every single time. So those people probably do tend to make more wooded courses. And, you know, those who make open probably tend to make more open. And it probably is a pretty big challenge to kind of go around and do both but yeah course design is very interesting definitely something i'd like to get uh more into in the future and just kind of explore that topic but let's talk about your story in disc golf how did disc golf start for juliana i was a senior in college and i had heard about disc golf from a previous professor who a computer science professor who actually had a mini and would play with it and toss it up in the air and talk about disc golf. And I actually thought disc golf was played with minis when I was taking his class. I didn't know any better. And then a few years later, my senior year, I was in geology classes with a guy by the name of Jason Steffen. 
and he had turned pro when he was in high school. He was one of the top players in Iowa, and he was very myopic. Every story was about disc golf. Every t-shirt had a disc golf logo on it, and I sort of made fun of him, and he kind of got sick of it. And, you know, geology classes, so we would often take field trips, and we were out in a court. We were out in a park one time, and he had his whole bag with him, and I was like, what, you need all of those? You can't just throw one? And and he was sick of it. And he's like, okay, Corver, pick something out. I pointed at this grouping of three evergreens and I said, okay, hit the middle one. And it was about 300 feet away. And I still remember he reached down and he picks up this red condor, big wide rim or big diameter disc. And he throws it. And in the middle of the flight, I basically fell in love with the sport before I'd even touched a frisbee because it was so beautiful and it was so obvious that he was controlling the flight of that disc not just beginning but you know he knew exactly what it was going to do the whole way and he put it within 10 feet of what I said and I looked at him and I said teach me how to play so I I don't think it's hyperbole to say I fell in love with the sport before I even threw a frisbee that's you know that's a great story I would say, you know, I want to get back to this a little bit real quick. But first, I know last time we talked a little bit about geology and just how I thought it was funny. And for people that don't know geologists, but if you know geologists, like this will make sense to you. But you could put like a but like 10 or I guess 10 people in a room, five of them be disc golfers and five of them be geologists, like kind of your stereotypical. And you wouldn't be able to like differ differentiate them like they would all look the same to you know just kind of like i guess you're typical like kind of scruffy you know maybe beards you know they look like they live in an astro van down by the river which is kind of what people think disc golfers are but like for people that know like that's kind of what geologists kind of are on campus too like if you go to a campus like you know who the geologists are they look a little dirty maybe they like smoke too many cigarettes and i just i just think it's hilarious because i was a geology major and so you know i can make fun of them but you know just getting back to disc golf um do you feel you know jason like he was able to pull that disc out and do that shot and I feel like in a way, disc golf used to be more simple, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like there was less obsession with like discs or getting like so many discs, everyone that has to come out, you have to have it. And I feel like people just enjoyed playing, loved playing. And they had, you know, they had what they used and what worked for them. And bags were a lot more simple and people just figured out their discs. Would you agree with that? Would you say like it used to be more simple, like, you know, years ago? compared to kind of what it is now just for your average players? Eh, I'm not sure I do agree with that. So people were still highly obsessed with discs, but there were just far, far fewer of them. You know, there were three manufacturers. You, every, if you were a serious player, you knew every disc on the market and you knew how it compared to every other disc on the market. And now there's, at least for me, absolutely no possibility that I'm ever gonna obtain that knowledge again. And it's growing so fast that you can't keep up, even if you do the second have that knowledge. So I, I think the obsession was still there, but the, um, the quantity was not. So, you know, yeah, new discs, if a new disc comes out, I want to try it, but a new disc comes out this summer. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't like 20, 30, 40, 50. And, and 
sure bags were simpler, but again, because you didn't have as many to choose from. That's a really did. interesting shout. And I mean, it goes back to the last episode we had talked about. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. We talk about why minimizing your bag can actually help you win more of your disc golf rounds. So like, absolutely go listen to that if you haven't already, but like, that makes sense, right? With what we were talking about a little bit last episode, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys. Go listen to it. It's good content. I promise you. Um, but like, I, I really stuck onto the part where you said, sure, there were less discs, but you knew what every disc was and what every disc did. You have that knowledge where, I mean, you're a hundred percent correct. You cannot have that knowledge nowadays. Like there's so many different manufacturers. I mean, you have Innova, Discraft, Dynamic Discs, uh, Discmania, Westside, Latitude 64, MVP. They just won a world championship. Prodigy, they just won a world championship. Like that's like seven different disc golf companies that I just rattled off right there. Not to mention all the other ones that are making discs that you just don't know about because you don't have that knowledge of how many discs. I guess like kind of just picking at this question a little bit more, do you almost see that as a disadvantage? Do you almost see it as like for someone coming into the sport, like a newer player, you know, they're less than 900 rated. Is it better for them to just pick a brand and just learn that brand rather than trying to like, have you know a destroyer and then a raider and then a dd3 and then a zeus and like like do you think it's better to just stick with one brand and figure that brand out i don't think well sorry i don't think the brand is as important as the speed of the disc i mean oh my god if you give a beginner a destroyer you expect he's going to come back no you gotta you gotta start off with something that's uh, not as fast that's not as most likely overstable because a person is probably going to have a hard time um, throwing a backhand, flipping something up initially. So I am a firm believer that players should uh, start with one or two discs, whether it be a mid-range or a slow fairway driver, don't really care. Tell that person how important it is to be able to control that one disc. It's got to be the right disc, can't be, like I said, a destroyer. Once they can turn that disc over, make that disc go relatively straight and hyzer that disc, then they're ready for other things. But until they have that control, I don't think it's doing anybody any favors by throwing lots of discs at them. And I don't care what brand it is. It just needs to be something that is able to be controlled. And I want to speak to what you mentioned, um, simplifying your bag. So I lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky for a number of years after I stopped touring and I was getting into running a little bit more. So I would go out to both Lover's Lane and Kyriakis and I would run around. So I didn't have my bag. I would have one mid-range and I would run. And both of those courses, my personal best is with one mid-range running. And I've played those courses a lot. Obviously, you know, because like you have to learn that disc, but go into that a little bit more of like, why do you think that is like being able to be that efficient with one disc? because your brain is not engaged <laughs> in a good way. Your brain is not getting in the way and you're not depending on the disc to do the work. You are dictating what has to be done and you're telling the disc. So I'm using something, I'm using something like I would give to a beginner where I can make it turn over, I can make it hyzer and I make it, can make it go straight. And if I put a lot on it, I can get it to go fairly far, not as far as my drivers, but far enough and there's just no second guessing anything. I, I've got my tool and I need to make my tool do whatever I can 
to finish the hole. So when I think when you get a bag involved, quite often, oh, should I throw this one with a little bit of hyzer or should I this one with a little bit of anhyzer? You know, a lot of the times it doesn't really matter. Just do it and do it with conviction. So throw it like you mean it. And when I do a running round with a mid-range, every single time I'm throwing it like I mean it. That is literally the best advice to hear, especially coming <laughs> off an episode talking about that. Come on, guys. If you are, aren't already subscribed, you should absolutely hit that subscribe button right now because that is just what we talked about last episode. You're getting a little bit of a sneak peek here as to it why. And I think that's so, so like high level facts right there because Horatio and I, you and I saw this firsthand when we played up in Lawrence about a year ago, this guy who was running behind our group literally stepped up to the tee, almost hit Nace, lapped us, came back around like six holes later and almost did it again. <laughs> like when you take the mental strain out of disc golf, your score goes up. And it's crazy to me that dynamic discs, they do their trilogy challenge every single year where you get a driver, a mid range and a putter. And people will go out to their courses that they take their full bag to and shoot a better round because there's not that mental strain there. That is just fascinating to me. And I think it also takes expectations away. And sometimes expectations are hard to live up to. So it, you're allowing yourself to succeed without the pressure of not doing so. Yeah, you know, because people will buy discs because of a certain hype or like this disc should do this. Or they saw a certain pro on tour do certain shots with this disc. So they're like, they buy this, this is going to fill that empty spot in my bag where I'm like lacking. If I buy this disc, I will be able to, you know, fill that spot because now I will be able to throw a decent, a decent Anheuser because I bought this understable disc and I'll be good. But then they buy it and it's one of 20 discs and they throw it on maybe one or two holes where it requires it. So they don't get enough practice with it. So then like the disc, it doesn't execute to what they, they believed it would. So then they're like, wow, this doesn't work that great. You know, it's not doing what it's supposed to. I don't like throwing it. So then they start throwing it even less. And then, so they don't ever learn that disc. And like, I love that. I'm very, you know, minimalist. And I've, I don't change my bag very often. Like the disc I buy and like, I carry, I have a Zuka car and I carry like a full Zuka car, but I have like two or three of each disc. And then, you know, on the whole where I'm going to throw that specific disc, I'll throw it two and three, two or three times to see if I can execute that same shot, you know, at least two out of the three times if not three and see how close I can get it. And, you know, I think that definitely would help new players out a lot instead of going out with a full bag and trying to make that shot with 20 different discs, as opposed to, you know, that one, like we were talking about, um, how has your bag changed over time? I don't even remember what I used to carry. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I'm carrying. I mean, I, I'm absolutely in love with the Roadrunner because I can make it do exactly what I want. I can make it do all three straight hyzer and hyzer and I can put enough hyzer on it that it can control a decent headwind and it's fine with a tailwind. It's not the fastest disc in the world, but I think the control makes up for the fact that I might be 20, 30, 40 feet behind a turn or something else. The turn, another disc that I really like, and I do get extra distance on that, but I'm not as confident in um, being able to put that pinpoint 
in the fairway where I want it. And not only that, the, the, the Roadrunner, I can also control how it's going to land. I can control if it's going to land on Heiser or Anheuser, which could be necessary depending on the slope of the, of the green. And I don't have that much control over the turn. Sometimes that's important. Surprisingly, my, I'm surprising myself that I absolutely love the G-Star Destroyer. I didn't think I had enough arm speed for that disc. And it's been fantastic because it is so reliable. And uh, the G-Star is not as overstable as the other plastics. So it's good for me. And that's fantastic into a wind. It's fantastic if I want to make sure that the, you know, under no circumstances can I go to the right. And so that's, that's one a place in my bag for obvious reasons. I put with the AVRX. I'm starting to work on a pig. So kind of a short sidearm, which is not something that I do very often in disc golf. I use it for some other, other frisbee disciplines. So that's maybe going to find a home in there pretty soon. TL3, very versatile, slower disc that's got a little bit of stability. I like both the Leopard and the Leopard 3. I like the Mako 3. That covers most of it. Oh, Wraith. I like I carry a Wraith as well. Do you ever notice yourself changing what's in your bag depending on the wind? I have discs in my car for super, super windy days. I don't often have to go to them, but they're there in case, in, you know, I'm talking 20, 30 mile an hour gusts that flip everything over. Mid-range, for example, um, I've got some gators that will never see the light of day unless there's a ridiculous headwind and I'm throwing into it because I can't keep the Mako straight in a ridiculous headwind. So um, yes, but it really has to be strong before they'll actually come out of the car and go in the bag. That helps also. I feel like it's important to learn to play in the wind with the discs you carry already. You could be traveling to a tournament or something and you're keeping an eye or maybe not paying attention to the weather. And this is your bag and you show up and it's 20 mile per hour winds and you don't have those backup winning discs. So I feel like it's important to learn those anyway. Um, I, I also benefit from the fact that I throw pretty low in general. So, you know, if you, like my Roadrunner, uh, I was out practicing this morning and it was somewhat windy. It wasn't ridiculously windy, but it was somewhat windy. And on a course, I probably wouldn't have chosen the Roadrunner, but, you know, I threw them all out that way. I'm going to throw them all back. So see what they do. And, you know, you keep them low, you put them on hyzer and you don't give them enough time to really do a lot of flexing and, you can still get them to go pretty straight. If you get them up in the air, then you got a lot more time where they can, they can get squirrely and, and uh, get offline. So I think that in that very specific instance, I'm not as affected as maybe some other people are. Just real quick, you know, I feel like a lot of new players definitely lose distance because of how high they throw and eventually they kind of just accept it or like, they throw pretty high, but it works. But then they get in the woods or whatever, and they can't, so they struggle. What would you say helps you to be able to throw low? Or I guess, what did you work on to be able to throw low? It's just the way that I throw. I don't know that, I don't remember thinking, boy, I need to make sure that I don't pop it up in the air. It's just, I've just always thrown low. Um, and I actually think that I am probably lower than ideal that I would gain some distance if I were, you know, maybe another 10 feet higher in the air. I, I don't know if it's me being conservative or it's just the releases that I do, you know, so another thing, these are 
what I consider weaknesses. I throw low all the time. And I sometimes um, have a tendency to get the nose up. So I think me potentially trying to force that nose down also help keeps me throwing low. I wouldn't encourage people necessarily to always, you need all, you need all heights. So I tend to do pretty well in courses that have low ceilings because it's not obstructing my normal shot. Uh, that's an advantage. But out on a wide open field, I'm probably losing some distance. And if I have to go up and over something, I'm definitely losing distance because my, my natural swing doesn't do that. So I don't, don't have as much uh, strength when I'm trying to go up and over something. So you need to work on all of it. Yeah. And I definitely have noticed in my game in the recent weeks that like when I throw a shot that is lower than I normally would, or it comes out of my hand and in my head, I'm immediately like, Oh, wow, that's low. That's going to be bad. It will go farther and be more accurate. So there's definitely some facts to what Horatio brought up. And then what you were saying as well, Juliana, and something I really kind of want to get into a little bit here is I saw this on your uh, Instagram here a little bit ago you i can't remember if it was a story or a post but you had said that you get more field work done at home than on the road on tour how can that possibly be yeah so how many times have you at least i've heard this so many times from usually like local regional pros there they'll oh if only i was on tour and i could play all the time and and so that's the perception that, you know, touring pl- pros, they have the opportunity to play 24-7. However, on the road, well, first of all, I mean, you got all logistics and you've got the sponsor responsibilities and you've got to drive 700 miles between events. But beyond that, I'm in a new city. I don't know where there's a field to go throw at. I don't know when it's going to be open or available or unlocked or, and I don't have 20 of every one of my discs at home. I do, you know, I've got six putters on the road. I've got three sidearm pigs. I've got, you know, I've got just a tiny amount of everything. So I can't concentrate and do a hundred approaches today because I'd be walking 20 miles to do so. And at home, I just pick up the two crates full of disc X and I go to the course or it's not a course. I go to the park that I know is open at this time. And I've got everything in front of me to myself. I know when I can be there. Even when I was here, when I had a full-time job, you know, I work from, X to Y. So I know I've got to get up early and get it in before my job starts. And I do that. And everything's on a schedule and regimented and I can fit into that. On the road, there's no schedule. There is no regiment. Things come up and are thrown at you all the time. And you have to be able to adapt. And usually you're just playing courses because you have to prepare for the next tournament. And it's really hard to ignore the course, ignore your friends, ignore the sponsors and go to that park and just throw. That's, you know, that's really important. I kind of had a question that I wanted to follow that up on about field work and just how important it is and how much it affects your game. Let's say, you know, anyone listening who's maybe, you know, let's say 
17 or 18 and like they want to go pro they want to tour they think they have it in them how much let's say that that person absolutely does not do any field work all they do is play league nights and courses and they do tournaments local tournaments and they compete do you think the difference of them making it and being able to compete is field work i think we're all individuals so i can't generalize but for me, part of it is I want the muscle memory on each shot. I want the knowledge of what my discs can do. But I also need to feel like I have done enough that I deserve to do well. So I need to feel like I've put in enough work that I then have the confidence that I can play well. I'm not saying I'm going to, but I've done what I can and now... I just need to pull it back out during the tournament. So for me, it's critical. I don't think it's that way for everybody, but boy, I don't see how it would hurt anybody. Yeah, and it's obviously very important to understand how your discs fly. And without that knowledge, I mean, how can you confidently choose a disc for a shot? Like you have to have that knowledge. And so I guess that kind of leads me into this question of, let's say you're somebody who only has 30 minutes to go out and do field work. Maybe it's once a week. If you're lucky, like you've just got a really busy schedule and you'd rather go play anyways, when you're out there, the time you decide to go do field work, what do you think is maybe the most important things or maybe the most important drills that you do, or you would think like a newer player, someone who's, you know, 925 rated or lower, you know, what, what do you think that the, the best use of their time would be? So the first thing um, before I answer that is time management. That's why I believe that going to the field is critical because I can go to the course and take two to four hours to play one round where maybe I threw two shots on each hole. But I can go to the field and in 30 minutes, I can throw 100 drives. So the amount of throws that you can get in in a certain amount of time is exponentially larger at field work than it is on a course. The most important thing I think that you need to know is how the discs fly for you. So I think that you need to take every one of your discs and you need to try to turn them over. You need to try to make them go straight. You need to try to hyzer them out. Maybe even try to roll them. You know, try to do a spike hyzer. You need to know what each disc does given the way that you throw it. And ideally you do that on a, a graduated field so you can see how far each one goes. And obviously it's nice to be able to compare them relative to each other, but it's even better like on a practice football field. When I was in grad school, before I went on tour the first time, I would, instead of having lunch, <laughs> I would go out to the intramural football field and I would throw. And that field had the, the yard markers on it. So I knew how far each disc was going. And that was, I didn't, I didn't know that that was valuable information, but it became extraordinarily valuable when I got to a course. I used to think it was a waste of time to play a round of disc golf because I could get so much more out of field work. And that's probably <laughs> taking things to a little extreme because obviously it's fun to play around a round of disc golf and that's why we all get into it. But at some point when my goals became so important 
then I let go of that to do something over here that wasn't quite as fun so that when I got to the tournaments, hopefully I would find more success. You know, I think that's definitely the difference between, you know, obviously being a world champion and not is that being able to embrace the not so fun or not so pretty portions of that, you know, the sacrificing, you know, it's definitely a lot funner and being able to go play course and seeing how you do or like, oh, I can do better today. Go to the gym and hit those reps after reps after reps. That is definitely, I feel like is the difference for most people. And most people aren't willing to do that. And, you know, for people that just play for fun, like that's okay. But to anyone listening who like wants to improve and wants to, you know, maybe go pro, I 100%, you know, I believe you because I mean, you see it throughout every, every other sport, like the guys and the girls that are successful, they're the ones that are in the gym or whatever their craft is. And they're not, you know, going and doing like boxing rounds or playing like scrimmages all the time. They're focusing on the, on the small things, which eventually, you know, they start to add up and they start to compound and eventually you become a world champion. I'm sorry, it's also important that you put yourself in inclement weather. So when it's ridiculously windy, that's when you need to go out and throw. So you know how to throw in the wind. When it starts raining, that's when you need to go out and putt. So you know how to putt in the rain. So it's important to prepare in conditions that are not ideal. Yeah, it's really funny. You know, I have friends that will not, they love playing disc golf, but they will not come out and play with me if it's windy because it (laughs) sucks and they don't play as good and they get frustrated. So it will be like, I'm not going, like, I can't today. It's like way too windy. And they get mad because like, I'll go out and play with them. And like on those windy days when they accidentally happen to come out and they don't realize it's windy and like, I still play just fine. Or I play like obviously a lot better than they're playing because I have played in the wind and like, I just love playing. So I just go out. It doesn't matter what the wind is. So you learn, like you have to learn to be able to play in it, but to them, like they don't care. They just want to be able to play and have fun. So well, and, and in different uh, Frisbee disciplines, for example, freestyle, um, if there is no wind, it's not as fun, you know? So in freestyle, if you're on the beach and you throw something up into the wind, it comes back to you and then you can brush it back up and it comes back to you and you can brush it back up, you know? And so there are, there are things that you can learn to do in the wind that kind of look like magic and <laughs> can, can be extraordinarily fun. So I think using it as a tool is is really valuable and a new challenge that is just so interesting what you said Horatio the the part where you were like you know the winners are the ones who are doing the little things the winners are the ones who you know aren't just on the course the whole time and you know that kind of makes a lot of sense like let's look at it from another perspective let's look at it like baseball for example you don't become a world series champion by playing just games you have to hit the ball off the tee you have to take ground balls you have to pitch you have to you have to put the work in look at it at football those guys are practicing five six times a week for one game a week imagine if you did field work five times a week and then played one round i i bet your your score would probably go down am i right yeah absolutely would go down but now also not everybody comes into the sport to be a world champion and that's perfectly fine. 
you know, if, if you just want to play a recreational round here and there, then absolutely do that. Nobody is going to judge anybody else because somebody just wants to have a fun round with their buddies. But I wasn't out there to have a fun round with my buddies. And I want to talk about that real quick. Like, what is that killer instinct in you? Like, wh- like, why did you decide, you know what, obviously you're good at this, very talented. Like, what then drove you to set out to tour and not only set out to tour, set out to win world championships? Uh, my life might be simpler if I actually could answer that, because then maybe I could turn it off. Um, I, I keep hoping I'll grow out of it. Uh, I haven't yet. Uh, but it has served me well. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've had a lot of successes. Uh, I have just always been that way in everything from competing with my older brother to classwork to sports to, you know, it's just how I've been, how I was built. And, you know, I think you see it in different kind of people. And when you see those people, you can kind of tell like they're kind of built that same way or they have that same whatever it is. One example, I would like Paul Macbeth, like he recently turned 30. No offense to Paul Macbeth, but he looks older than 30. I think uh, he looks but, so young. <laughs> really? Like, I don't know what it is, like just about his face, like he just looks t- like more tired and more like stressed and like, you know, your typical like, you know, 30 year old who doesn't care about much, I guess. He definitely think, has a determination. Yeah, but I look. think it's, it's that like, that that stress that comes from wanting to be the best you can be at that thing. Like, you know, there's a point where he decided he wanted to be the best in the world and he did absolutely everything possible to get there. And then he wanted to do it again and again, and he's still wanting to do it. And for the people that have that in them, like there's a lot of stress that comes with that. And like you're talking about, you know, you're saying you're hoping you grow out of it, but you haven't, I guess, what kind of helps you deal with that, with that stress of like either, not feeling like you're enough or not feeling like you're going to be able to repeat. You know, maybe I am handling it better than I used to because, you know, I haven't, I haven't been on a podium in my, well, actually, I don't even know where I've placed, but I certainly haven't won anything (laughs) other than the age protected thing. And, and I am getting so much out of my playing right now that I feel completely rewarded and satisfied and still driven to do better so before I could even feel like I had failed if I won. And, you know, it was just never, it was never good enough for me. And that is a prison. Sure, got a lot of checks in different boxes, but it's not, sustain, it's not a healthy, sustainable uh, position, at least for me. I'm, I'm sure other people can handle it better. And I'm, I don't regret anything that that I have done I'm proud of all of that stuff but you know this actually the fact that I can now take seventh at the Des Moines challenge and feel really good about that part of that is due to the fact that the size of the field the field size for the women is much larger than it used to be and not only is it larger but the um, the number of people who could potentially win on any given week is much much larger and before it was like maybe two people could win and before i'm talking 20 years ago and the money goes down much deeper so it used to be either you take first or this was a waste of money and now you know maybe even maybe top 10 maybe top 15 can still come out of it and feel like okay i made a little bit 
not not too bad you know this this wasn't a mistake um so all of that is makes being on tour now much more accessible and obtainable and sustainable than it used to be so i think that's when me having the perspective you know i'm 50 years old so i'm giving myself a little grace and i haven't played competitively for a long time so intellectually i know that i'm not playing my best and I don't know where my best is anymore. So I'm just, for me, it's fun to, the climb is fun. It's fun to see how far up I can get. And so, you know, I'm still climbing. It's not always linear. Sometimes you jump back down and then you try to get back up. And that's, that's the real fun for me. And this time I don't have the ultimate, I have got to win an X or this whole thing is a failure. I don't have that. Um, so maybe I have finally matured out of that attitude. A tough question alert coming in, but like, (laughs) do you think that, you know, you said obviously the competition is much deeper now. Is it maybe that the competition 20 years ago, not being as fierce and like, Hey, 20 people could walk away winning this. Like, did that almost create that prison that you were talking about earlier where it's like, yeah, sure. Like I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied with my game. I tried not to compare myself to the people I was playing with. I tried not to use them as a watermark as to whether I was satisfied or not, but I did compare myself to the men. So if back then we almost always played the same courses, so I could compare my scores across the board. And if I, would have cashed in the men's, then I was happy. If I would not have cashed in the men's, then there were other things that went into the equation, but that was always my goal to play well enough that had I been playing against the men, I would have been, you know, last place cash. They've gone away from that. Is there parts of that that you liked or are you glad that the way it is now? My emotion and my intellect do not agree on this one. So my intellect says, yes, it makes so much sense to have women's tees. And of course, (laughs) I don't really want to play a 13,000 foot course. So I'd rather play the 11,000 foot course, which is still a lot. Uh, So intellectually, absolutely, there should be tees that are appropriate for the distances that the women throw um, so that there aren't a lot of in-between holes where everybody's going to get a four or everybody's going to get a five because those are boring. And we want stuff that has score separation. Yes, that makes sense. Emotionally, I want to compare myself to the guys. That's how I grew up doing it. And that's how I still, although now I think that um, I wouldn't compare nearly as favorably. So maybe it's a good thing I'm not comparing myself to the men anymore. Do you do any of that comparison with maybe like some of the top women in the game right now, like Paige Pierce, who is racking up her world championships right now. Katrina Allen just picked up a second world championship. Do you ever compare yourself to them or maybe think what it would have been like if they played 20 years ago with you? I guess it's impossible not to, to a certain extent. Everything's different. You know, the courses are different. The technology is different. Expectations were different. Um, the way people threw was different. So there's no real way to do that. But knowing myself, say they were on top of the mountain when I came up chronologically, 
that's impossible. But again, say that was the case, you know, I just know that I would not have stopped until I also got on top of the mountain. So maybe my best back then wouldn't have been good enough to do that. But then I wouldn't have stopped at that. I would have kept going. You know, you said there was at the time, there was maybe like a couple of people that could have won. And I'm guessing like you were one of those, you know, do you wish there would have been more competition, like more fuel? Because I feel like sometimes there's definitely more now, but I feel like at some tournaments, Paige Pierce will kind of like feel that. Like she wishes, like, I feel like she is the kind that executes or, you know, performs under pressure. And I feel like some of those tournaments, she doesn't have that, like that fire behind her because there's not, no one really chasing her. Do you wish you would have had more of that, you know, back when you were playing? Yes and no. If I had, maybe I wouldn't have gone and played USDGC all the time. I, and there were other tournaments where I played in the men's division instead of the women's division, you know? So like I set a course record against men at a course in um, Maryland 22 years ago. And I was on a final four, you know, skins match at the end of the tournament against the men because I played with the men and I had one of the four highest scores, you know? So those things I wouldn't have experienced if the women's field was as strong as it is now. Of course, I would have had a lot more fun <laughs> maybe in the women's field, but um, some of my highlights are succeeding against the men. Yeah, I think that's really, really awesome. I think this conversation has been fantastic so far. I've learned a lot. I feel like you've opened up a lot to us. I definitely appreciate your honesty with us today. I do have one more question before I allow Horatio to take us into the ace round and explain it for those newer listeners. This might be a little funny, but if Jason had a bad shot when he first threw that, if it was just terrible, right? Let's say the press <laughs> got to him and he just whiffed it, grip locked it, did whatever. It was not a good shot. Do you still fall in love with disc golf? That is absolutely hilarious. Nobody has ever asked me that. Um, no, I probably just would have made fun of him, laughed and walked away. <laughs> That's a great question. So, Jason, if you're listening out there, <laughs> you are the reason Juliana Corver is a five-time world champ and has made a career in disc golf. So give yourself a pat on the back, bud. <laughs> Jason was at the Des Moines Challenge, and he caddied for me uh, the last day. And I let everybody know this is the guy that taught me how to play. Well, you know, glad he actually knew his game and knew his disc when he was able to execute that day. <laughs> I feel like it would have been any other one of us. We would have probably, you know, just thrown it on the side of the road and, you know, we wouldn't be here right now. I think we're ready to get into the ace round. These are just the five questions we ask every single guest. They're kind of just to get in their head and just to hear how people's, you know, opinions differ. And the first one we have is you're taking a buddy, a new player, out to get their own set of discs they've played a couple of times and they want to buy their own what one putter mid and driver do you recommend to them well we kind of already talked about this and i would actually just get them a mid-range and right now i just put a mako three in their hand and maybe i'd buy a couple other ones and and i'd stash them away in the car but they can't throw them until they can throw that mako straight make it turn right and make it turn left i love it yeah, I think that's a really, really smart answer right there. The second question we have for you, what is the favorite course you have played and what is one course you would like to play? I just blanked on the name of the course in Sweden, Jarva. Jarva is one of my favorite courses. It's gorgeous. 
It's got really interesting shots. And the thing that set it apart is after playing one round of 18, I could sit down and I could basically tell you every single hole. So everything had character and it didn't just meld together. And I think that's an important feature of a good course. And a course that I want to play, I want to play anything in Finland, everything in Finland. <laughs> I want to take a trip to Finland and play some of those courses. Isn't that the place that like recently or this year was just putting like hundreds of courses in like a small space or something? Well, I know they have an island that has a bunch of courses that might be what yeah. you're referring to, but I mean, just the entire country per capita has more courses than yeah. I believe anywhere else. So yeah. I want to go see that. <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Okay. Next question we got here. One tip you would give to yourself, you know, who just started playing disc golf. So maybe, you know, a year into it after J you saw Jason shot, one tip you would give to yourself. I, that's really, really hard because I don't want to affect the path that I ended up on. I mean, I want to say be kind to yourself because I was really hard on myself, but if I hadn't been, maybe I wouldn't have had so many successes. We hear, we get that one a lot, you know, just mm -hmm. have patience, be kinder to yourself, you know, do the work and it'll, it'll happen. So love that answer. Trust the process. The fourth question we have for you here is what is your favorite memory playing disc golf? Oh, I got a good one. So when I lived in Indianola, which is the town that uh, Pickard Park is in, which is where we played last weekend. I lived there for about a year after grad school and there was this field that I would practice on and it was adjacent to a middle school and the middle school kids clearly were not allowed to go on this field, but they could go right up to it. So I would be on this field. And if I was practicing during recess, there were about four or five middle school girls that would come right up to the edge and, you know, they were pretending to be cheerleaders. So they would cheer during my throwing practice and they would actually huddle together and then they would discuss it and then they'd get in their line and they'd do their, and go, go Frisbee girl, go, go. Throw Frisbee girl, throw, throw. And then they'd do cartwheels and they'd, oh, I would cry. It was so oh funny <laughs> and so sweet. And they would do it every single recess that I was out there throwing. Wow. That sounds a little similar, but very different to Quentin's field work practices yeah they weren't <laughs> oh my gosh literally when i would field work at this middle school football field and they they don't it's middle school they didn't they don't have recess in middle school okay i don't know why they were out there the teachers would just let them out there and they would heckle me there was no support it was all heckling all bad vibes. <laughs> I was getting trashed on by these seventh graders. <laughs> oh, you know, you're right. This was, this was an elementary school. This wasn't, wasn't a middle school. Um, I had another, another story from the school. I was throwing on that same adjacent field. And I'm sorry you got heckled, by the way. That would have been hard That's okay. It was really <laughs> tough to just keep going. And, like, if I was driving, because I would – the way I was positioned, I was on, like, the <laughs> – like where you, they do like discus or whatever. And sure. so I was on that little pad throwing onto the football field so I could get a little bit extra distance. And they would stand on the track in the way. So I couldn't <laughs> throw at them because I, they knew I was bad enough that I might just hit one of them. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay, now another endearing story. Um, school had just let out 
And so I had my boxes of discs and I used to have discs so that they wouldn't have a personality. So all of my X discs were blue 172, all of this disc, they were pink and 107, you know, so, so it looked like they were all the same and they were. And then I would try to, I would take one box and I'd try to make them all turn. I'd take another box and I'd try to make them all hyzer. And I had just finished one box of discs and I was about to get another box out. And these two tiny little boys, they were probably second or third grade, walked by. And the one said to the other one, oh, I wonder what the white ones do. Because <laughs> he'd just seen the blue ones do something and the pink ones did something else. So... I thought that was just super, super sweet too. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Last question we got for you here is what is the biggest mistake you see new players make? I think a lot of guys try to throw the fastest thing out there and try to be super tough and manly and throw something that's really overstable, like a destroyer. And that ends up what I maybe not quite, affectionately called jerky boy <laughs> so you you yank something over and you know it's going to come back and i don't think you're doing anybody a favor by playing that way obviously if you need to get around something and that's the the route that you need to do great but if that's your nothing's in the way this is my shot you need to work on a little bit of subtlety and a little bit more control with something that's not as overstable I really like that advice and it really just goes along with a lot of what we talked on last episode. If you guys haven't listened to that episode and you enjoyed this episode, absolutely go check it out and maybe check out another incredible interview that we have had. Juliana, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Before we get out of here, where can the people connect with you on social media? And if you have any sponsors you want to thank, go ahead and do it here at the end. Uh, well, on Facebook and Instagram, Juliana Corver and Juliana only has one N in it and Corver is spelled with K. So um, you can find me there. I have a couple of collaborations that haven't been announced, but eventually, hopefully soon, one with OTV and one with Revolution Disc Golf Bag. So I'm anxious to share those with everybody and I will do so on social media when they are available. Awesome. Yeah. Juliana is back. Very exciting. So happy to see, you know, back out on tour, you know, I know we, you took some, some time off, you took a break, but you're back and I feel like you are loving it just like when you first started playing. So that's awesome to see. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us and, you know, wish you nothing but the best out on tour and for the future of your career. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Chain Clankers podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Chain Clankers and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us from so you never miss another episode.